So um, I am now going to uh, begin us with some words of prayer, and then we'll get started on uh, chapter one. All things going according to plan, which they seldom ever do, of course, uh, we will actually finish um, chapter one today. Wouldn't that be amazing? And at the current rate, we should be able to get through all the chapters of the Westminster Confession by the eschaton, roughly. um, I don't know. It's true. That's absolutely true. Or, um, you know, uh, at least by the end of the Biden administration, so one way or the other. Anyway, um, let's go ahead and uh, pray, shall we? God, our gracious Father, we thank you so much for the uh, day that you've granted to us and all the ways that you've taken care of us and provided for our needs. We thank you, Lord, for the instruction that you give us in your word. You tell us about yourself, and you tell us what we are to believe and what we're to do, the things to be, uh, the the credenda and the agenda for our lives. Remind us, O Lord, that uh, these things are not merely theoretical, they're not objective truths that are simply to be held uh, at arm's length and examined, but rather these are things to be believed These are things to be uh, put into action, Lord, and they should direct the way that we read Scripture and then help others to interpret and understand it themselves. Now, Lord, please be with us here today. Be the guide of our minds and help me, O Lord, to to stand upright and to teach without falling over. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be taking a look at uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, starting with chapter 7, I mean, uh, chapter 1, section 7. So take a look at uh, page 920 in your, your purple uh, or um, mauve or what is it supposed to, what, what color is it, Joy? Burgundy. Burgundy. Got it. Your burgundy Psalter hymnal. I, I forget everything. I forget everything. What's your name? Anyway. So. <laughs> she didn't catch that. All right. So uh, who's going to read for us? Who will read for that? Okay, go ahead, Joy. All things in Scripture are not alike, plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some places of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding. Okay, so to give you some... Uh, yes, Jane. Clarification, where are you again? That page number's not... 920. Uh, chapter 1, section, section 7. I'm so sorry. Section 7. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, to give you a little bit of historical context, obviously, um, this... Uh, Confession of Faith was written in the 1600s, uh, part of the the movement known as the Second Reformation after the initial Reformation. But we do remember that um, during the First Reformation, of course, the Roman Catholic Church had pushed back on the idea, uh, and that for many, many years, had pushed back on the idea that the common people should have the scriptures for themselves. They had, of course, kept the Bible uh, in um, the Vulgate translation, Vulgate Latin, Uh, which was originally done by Jerome in the 300s, and they had not um, allowed the Bible, generally speaking, to be translated into vernacular or common language or vulgar tongues, as uh, we are going to be, uh, vulgar meaning common, obviously, uh, in that case. They didn't want the common people 
to have the Bible for themselves. They said that they would mess it up, that they would not be able to understand it. Only uh, Holy Mother Church could interpret the scriptures for the people, and it had to be done alongside uh, tradition. It's very much like the way uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, approach scripture today. You're not, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're not supposed to read scripture by itself. You are supposed to read scripture with the Jehovah's Witnesses' guides to scripture. Uh, and in fact, they, uh, they will confess that if somebody reads the uh, scriptures by themselves, they'll come to Christian conclusions, which of course is not what the Jehovah's Witnesses want. So you, uh, you have to have the Watchtower uh, Society uh, interpreting the Bible for you. Yes, William and then Joy. So when Jerome did his translation into the Latin, mm -hmm. wasn't that a very Yes, it was, it was exactly that. Uh, what Jerome was doing is he was uh, translating the Hebrew and the Greek, obviously, into uh, Latin because the Western Roman Empire, that was, the, uh, that was the lingua franca of the Western Roman Empire, just as Greek was the lingua franca of the Eastern uh, uh, Roman Empire. So it was to make the Bible more accessible that, uh, to everybody. But by the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, uh, it was the idea that only scholars should be able to, uh, and um, the, um, uh, the magisterium, the, uh, the church itself, should be the only place where the scripture should be read and understood. We also remember that the services themselves were conducted in Latin, which if you were an English peasant in the 1500s, as a general rule, you didn't understand a word of it. So for instance, uh, and this is a famous example, um, we get our word hocus, or our phrase hocus pocus from uh, the misinterpretation of, the, uh, uh, of what the priest did in elevating the host. He would say hoc est corpus man, uh, which is the Latin for this is my body, uh, the words of Christ. And uh, they would tinkle a bell to show that uh, uh, in their interpretation, the, uh, the host had literally become the flesh of Christ in that moment. It was an act of magic to the average peasant. So it was all hocus pocus uh, to them. So. Uh, this is a pushback, obviously, against that idea. Here we have um, in section seven, several things being taught. Go to the next slide, if you will. First, uh, things this teaches us to remember about scripture. First, it's perspicuous, from Latin perspicuous, <laughs> transparent, meaning easily understood or lucid. Um, you can, there's a see-throughableness to scripture. Scripture isn't intending to hide the truth from us. Scripture intends to reveal the truth to God's people. Now, we said that something, I mean, earlier, and the Westminster Confession makes this point at length, uh, something was necessary in order for God's people to be able to understand this uh, scripture. What was that? In order to understand the scriptures are right, what did we need? Yes? The Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Otherwise, the meaning of scripture remains veiled. Christ makes this point, and Paul makes this point, you know, um, in John chapter 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for you think that in them you, um, you have life, but these are they which speak of me, all right? So they weren't finding Christ in the scriptures. Uh, you remember when Jesus walks to Emmaus with the two disciples who don't recognize who they're walking with, uh, he opens their minds to understand the scripture, um, God has to do that working within us or we will never be able to, um, you know, come to the right conclusion in terms of salvation and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the meaning of scripture in most places is plain. 
And it's not, um, it is usually univocal. All right, univocal, uh, univocal is a word that means speaking with one voice, okay? It doesn't have multiple meanings. And that was one of the mistakes that, uh, that grew up in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, they, they came to this conclusion that the meaning of scripture was plural, that there were many different uh, meanings to each part of scripture. And so um, they, they came up with weird interpretations. Like for instance, uh, one of the things that is obviously not that important, uh, when we have the great catch of fish, and the net is hauled uh, inland. Um, the number of fish, and I've forgotten how many it is, uh, is actually given. Uh, and they would try to, they would say, okay, the, the number means, well, the, the number isn't the point. The, the, the point is the great catch of fish points towards, uh, first, the fact that Christ is, is God, uh, he's God the Son. And secondly, the catch of fish also indicates uh, it's, it's something that Christ himself uh, makes it clear. From now on, you will be fishers of men and that you will be bringing many into the church. So these are things that are easy to understand. They're, they're see-throughable. We don't have to find some sort of mystic meaning to the scriptures. Uh, you remember a little while ago, there was that awful book that came out, The Bible Code. Does anybody remember that? Where you go through and you try to make mathematical, you know, um, uh, you circled this word, and then it relates to that word, and you've got... But that's not what the Bible was meant uh, to do. The Bible was meant to simply teach us the truth in plain language. Um, so, it's perspicuous. The second thing is, every essential article of faith and rule of practice may be clearly learned from Scripture. We don't need gnosis. Gnosis uh, is the, the, the secret teachings, uh, new revelations, or tradition. So you don't need these teachers who, who say, well, I have the, the secret word from God. Uh, we don't need modern charismatic and Pentecostal guys saying, I've had new, uh, a word of knowledge that will help us to understand what it is God means. And without me, you'll never understand what the scripture actually teaches. So all of the essential articles of the faith are set out clearly at one point or another within scripture. So for instance, the way of salvation through faith alone and Christ alone is something that's very clear throughout the entire New Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, we have the need of the Redeemer, uh, the coming Redeemer, set out the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. We can go through Scripture and find those essential um, doctrines. Now, this doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is absolutely clear. Some things are harder to figure out than others, but the main things are the plain things. So ordinary Christians may interpret Scripture for themselves. Who would like to read Acts 17.11 for us? Anybody? Oh no, where's my Bible? Here's my Bible. James. Son, you can do the next one. These were more fair minded than those of the Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Okay, so who is this speaking of? The Bereans, right? Uh, and the Bereans had been listening to who? Paul. They'd been hearing Paul uh, preach the gospel. And Paul had been referring back to what? 
the Old Testament. So they would go home after Paul had spoken and they would do what? Read from the Old Testament and determine whether or not what he was saying was true. So they were able to interpret the scriptures for themselves and come to conclusions. That's something that should happen. It shouldn't be, I'm the one interpreting the scriptures for everybody in the congregation, simply because I've gone to seminary. Joy, your hand is up. copies of the scriptures? Not very common. Um, they would certainly not have had um, all of the books of the Bible, generally speaking, unless uh, they were synagogue leaders. However, the, uh, the scrolls would have been available, generally speaking, at the synagogue, and people, as long as they didn't take them out, would have been allowed to look into them. So it's, interesting, uh, it's interesting that was a practice that also, in the Middle Ages, prevailed once Bibles started being printed. So, for instance, Henry VIII uh, decreed that a version of the Bible be made available in every church. Uh, and the, the ironic thing was, uh, of course, that he had, um, uh, had put to death the man who had done the majority of the translating. That was Tyndale. He'd, uh, he'd executed him. But Henry, the, uh, Henry VIII's great Bible, uh, as it was called, was um, uh, the pulpit Bible. Uh, for many, many years in English churches. And they would chain it to the, uh, to the pulpit, but it, um, uh, private individuals or you know, people would be able to come to the church and to read it uh, for themselves. So the, the same practice prevailed in the synagogues. If you could read uh, the Hebrew, you were allowed to do so. Yes. Well, it's not, but, it's not encouraged because. Well, yeah, but um, in the uh, that they also have access to. Well, I mean, I online in books, you can you can buy your own copy of the. I mean, I've got a copy of the <laughs> Hebrew Old Testament right here. So. Anyway, um, but in any event, Scripture is perspicuous, but not all of Scripture is equally perspicuous. So, song. Would you read Second Peter three fifteen and sixteen for us, by any chance? Sure. Thank you. So um, Peter, speaking of Paul's writings, says some of his epistles, there are places in, 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 in Paul's epistles that are, where there are things that are hard uh, to understand. I always, um, uh, there's one phrase in the, the Pauline epistles that, uh, that drives me crazy, which is um, uh, talking about uh, let them have uh, a symbol of authority upon their heads because of the angels. <laughs> like, ah, Anyway, um, but uh, there are various places in the Pauline epistles where he, he it, it's a little more complicated. It's a little less straightforward. So we are to remember that not everything in Scripture is absolutely easy to understand. But we're going to learn the analogy of faith. And uh, by using this, we'll be able to come to good conclusions about those places in Scripture that are harder to understand. Let's go to the next um, the next one. All right. Um, who would like to read first uh, the first chapter, section eight? 
Westminster Confession. Okay, William, go ahead. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto an interest in the scripture, and are commanded in fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Now, um, funny story, uh, at least funny story to me, the, uh, the, the first time I read that section of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one, I was like, why would we want to translate the Bible into vulgar language? I mean, wouldn't we want to <laughs> translate it into, you know, clean and nice language? But uh, anyway, our, our understanding of the word vulgar has changed significantly. Vulgar just meant the common tongues of the, uh, the people at the time. So um, they're reemphasizing the, the fact that the Bible is to be made available to everybody. Uh, and it's uh, to be translated into the languages that they spoke so that they might be able to understand it and, uh, and pass it on to others. Um, go to the next slide, if you would. That's William Tyndale uh, in, uh, defending himself or in debating against uh, the Roman Catholics. He said... If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Um, and he was speaking at the time to a Roman Catholic bishop. So uh, the idea is, um, uh, you know, Tyndale's uh, driving force was that he wanted everyone in England to be able to read the scriptures for themselves and to explain them to others as well. So, um, and of course, he did very well in that particular pursuit, uh, even though he died in the midst of it. Uh, so this teaches us that as the scriptures were originally written in the languages which at the time of writing them were most generally understood, God has hereby intimated his will that they should be translated into the vernacular language of different la uh, nations that everyone may read and understand them. And that's Robert Shaw and his particular commentary. So we should be doing everything that we can, obviously, to make the scriptures available to everybody. Uh, who can name an organization that's uh, involved still in that process? Wycliffe. Wycliffe, yeah. It was interesting, going out into uh, Uganda, I had assumed that all of the um, Ugandan tribes had a Bible in their, um, their language. Uh, I was wrong. In Captura, the, uh, the people are the Sebe. Uh, and the, uh, uh, the scriptures have not been translated in their entirety into the Sabae language. So if you live in that particular region and you want to read the Bible, you either have to read it in English, which is the second language, or it's supposed to be the second language for all Ugandans, or you have to read it in another tribal language. Also, I found out that the, uh, the Karamajong, who live in Karamoja, their translation of the Bible was done by the Roman Catholics and it was based on the Good News Bible, and it's a terrible translation. So, yeah, that is a terrible translation of the Bible. So they moved, um, uh, they, they did, not only was it a bad translation of the Bible that they were working from rather than the original languages, 
But the translation that was actually done uh, by the Roman Catholic priests who were in charge was not particularly good either. So the missionaries often pound their heads, you know, at the, oh, this is not what that means, <laughs> you know, the, uh, uh, when they get to a particular uh, section of scripture. So um, uh, it, let's just say that the translation work, um, there's still a lot that needs to be done worldwide <laughs> to make the, uh, the scriptures absolutely available to everybody in their vernacular language. So, all right, any comments or questions about this before we move on? Nope, pretty straightforward to us. Let's go to the next. All right, so uh, chapter one, section nine. Who's going to read that one for us? Hey, Keith, you want to read that? The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself, and therefore, when there is question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak clearly. Okay, this is called the, um, the analoga... Uh, fide, or the analogy of faith. Uh, the idea is that um, when I find a place in scripture that speaks of something, and it's not absolutely clear. So for instance, again, to go to Paul, the, uh, his comment about the baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians. Um, how do we understand that? Well, we go to other places that speak more clearly about baptism, rather than creating a new doctrine based upon one uh, one part of scripture. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the ways that we do that, uh, some of the ways that we figure out what scripture means by comparing scripture to scripture. That's what we do. We, uh, our, our primary rule is always going to be compare the scriptures with the scriptures in order to find the true meaning of them. So um, the analogy of faith. The best and only infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. Some things that are briefly and obscurely handled in one place are more fully and clearly explained in other places. And therefore, when we would find out the true sense of Scripture, we must compare one passage with another that they may illustrate one another. And we must never affix a sense to any particular text, but such as is agreeable to the analogy of faith or the general, scream, scream, the general scheme of divine truth. Now... One of the, um, the things that we need to remember in all biblical interpretation is that we not become guilty of eisegesis. What is eisegesis? Reading into scripture. Reading, yes, reading a meaning into scripture. I go with a, a preconceived notion and then I find it in that particular section of scripture, but I've actually read my opinions, I've read my, uh, my beliefs, uh, my understanding into the scripture rather than allowing the scripture to teach me. Uh, so I've overlaid uh, a misunderstanding upon it. Uh, that will happen often when we have deeply held beliefs about uh, various things culturally. So uh, for instance, one of the things that I dealt with in seminary on a regular basis, um, and I, I hate to say this, but particularly amongst the Korean community, was they are very uh, zealous for finding passages of scripture that speak against alcohol and then making that into a blanket, uh, making all of them into a blanket prohibition against drinking. So when you look at these though, you, you immediately have to say to yourself, well, I, I'm sorry, that, actually that scripture is against, it's speaking against the abuse of alcohol. And aren't we all against the abuse of alcohol? I mean, overindulging, drinking until you're drunk and senseless and stupid and vomiting, we're all against that, aren't we? But um, we get into trouble when we, uh, when we try to make that into a blanket prohibition against all drinking because Christ and the apostles drank. 
So we, um, I mean, in one case, we went through a, um, and Joy will remember this, uh, we had an elder, a Korean elder in our, in our particular congregation who was absolutely opposed to all drinking and wanted us to preach against drinking from the pulpit. And he absolutely wanted the elders and the, the pastor to never drink under any circumstances. And so we said, okay, um, we can't bind men's consciences if God's word doesn't bind them. We can't uh, tell people they're not allowed to do those things. And so uh, we, would, we would take him to, to sections of scripture where, you know, for instance, the wedding at Cana. Um, John uses the, the Greek word for wine. He didn't change the water into grape juice. Grape juice didn't exist at that point in time. Why didn't grape juice exist at that point in time? Yes? Pasteurization. Yeah, pasteurization and vacuum packing weren't, uh, weren't available. Okay, there's only two. You, you, once you've squeezed the new grapes, okay, at this point in time, um, there is enough yeast in the air that it automatically will begin to ferment. You don't even have to add sugar or, you know, uh, yeast in order to begin the process of wine uh, being made. Um, and if it doesn't do that, you leave it long enough and it simply goes bad. Bacteria builds up in it. One of the things uh, about wine is that the alcohol content actually prevents bacterial formation. Um, so farmers, you know, the point was you kept your, uh, your grape crop by making them into, uh, there was only two things you could do with grapes. You could make them into raisins or you could make them into wine. Otherwise they went bad rather quickly. Uh, so you were very zealous to, to make wine. And certainly um, the, the whole point uh, in the wedding at Cana was that the Lord of the feast says, um, you know, you brought out the best wine. Well, there's no best grape juice. <laughs> you know, it's, he's talking about the maturity. This is the aged wine. This is the best wine. This is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the real vintage stuff. Um, and we point, uh, we, we got to, it was actually, it was a really silly point um, uh, in the discussions where finally we got the elder to, to say, okay, it is speaking about wine there. I, I, I understand what you're saying. It's speaking about wine, but I still don't think we should drink it. And you're like, um, <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. Um, so it became irresolvable. But that's just one example where we can take our cultural presuppositions and we can carry them into, uh, into scripture. I, I've seen some progressive Christians mangling scripture um, because they don't, uh, they don't want to take what scripture says about sexual ethics they want to pound modern sexual ethics into the Bible. So um, scriptures that make it very clear, for instance, the homosexuality is sinful, uh, they will come up with these weird interpretations of, um, based on a historical, um, in, in actually unhistorical ideas, uh, or they'll say, you know, that um, we, we've misunderstood these scriptures for many years. They can't possibly mean what they seem to mean simply because that would be wrong and unfair and, and so on. So don't be eisegetical when it comes to the interpretation of the scriptures. Allow the scriptures to be first self-interpreting, scripture interpreting scripture, but secondly to allow it to teach you rather than you attempting to teach scripture its meaning. So never affects a sense to any particular text. Uh, never, never attempt to force a text to say something that it doesn't actually say. Let's go on to the next uh, slide. So chapter 1, section 10. Um, 
Who would like to read that? Yes, Jane, go ahead. Now, why was this a revolutionary statement? Yes, Joy? It said that the, the final authority in, the matter, in all matters of controversy are not councils, it's not the Vatican, it's not any magisterium made up of men making these decisions, but rather it is finally the scriptures that make the, uh, the, the, the final decision. Um, who can tell me what, uh, what Luther's famous Here I Stand speech was at, uh, at Worms? Does anybody have it memorized? <laughs> Well, he made the, he made the point, um, he was asked to recant his beliefs, and he, uh, he indicated he could not recant his beliefs, uh, especially because if he recanted all of his beliefs and, and dismissed all of his writings as heresy, there were certain things that uh, even the Roman Catholic Church and the doctors of the church confessed uh, as true. But he made the point that um, uh, he could not accept popes and councils as the ultimate authority because they had often contradicted each other. Okay, they, uh, you know, the, the Pope had said one thing, the Council had said something else. Um, and that uh, ultimately he, he made the uh, point, my conscience is captive to the word of God here. I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Um, it's the word of God that controls our conscience. Now this is very important when it comes to uh, Presbyterian and Reformed practice. Historically, we have always stated the idea that um, when it comes to our faith and our practice, we cannot force people to, one, believe anything implicitly. What does that mean? What does it mean to ask somebody to believe something implicitly? Yes? Well, without yet yeah, putting implicit faith in the person who's telling you, I, I believe everything that you say implicitly. I will place my faith in, in what you say, regardless of whether or not it's reasonable, regardless of whether there's any evidence for it. So, for instance, uh, that's how we got doctrines like transubstantiation. Uh, transubstantiation states that the bread and the wine, literally, at the moment of uh, uh, blessing by the, uh, the priest, they literally become the body and blood of Christ. And then they brought in Aristotelian physics in order to give you an explanation. The outward um, uh, appearance remains the same, but the actual nature of the thing uh, changes because Aristotle had broken it down into its... Um, uh, it's, yes, its essence and its accidents. Its essence changes, its accidents remain the same. 
And then they came up with the explanation when you would say, well, then why, didn't it, why doesn't it look like flesh to us? Ah, because you have to have faith. You have to exercise faith. If it, if it literally became uh, bleeding bloody flesh in the hands of the priest and uh, a, a uh, chalice full of blood, that wouldn't require faith any longer. But uh, it, just so that we would have to exercise faith in our believing, um, the Lord determined that uh, while the essence would change, the accidents, uh, the outward form of the, uh, of the bread and the wine would not change. Um, a lot of people uh, <laughs> pointed out um, that a doctrine that requires Aristotle in order to be believed and understood is not, not really biblical. It's, it's rather like I used to get, um, <laughs> I got an... Oh, no, yeah, no, it's the uh, Limbus Patrum. The, uh, all right, Limbo is for children who die without being uh, baptized. And then there was the Limbus Patrum for the, the fathers that they needed uh, to support biblical doctrines. Oh, I'm, I'm not kidding. So they put, you know, Plato there and Aristotle there. It's not, it's not hell because they were, you know. So because you didn't want to, uh, you didn't want to be getting any of your doctrinal beliefs from guys who were in hell. So... We had to move some of the philosophers into a higher realm. Uh, not, uh, you know, in any event. Uh, yeah, so crazy stuff. So um, what was I? Oh, yeah, I was, I was about to say. Uh, but we can, we reform can do this as well, believe it or not. Um, I was uh, sitting through a presentation of the, um, uh, not day age, what is it? The... Uh, Framework. Thank you so much. I am. I'm so tired. I'm. I'm my. My mind is is just a jumble at this point in time. But uh, anyway, the framework uh, theory for the um, uh, for creation, which uh, essentially states that these uh, that the days of creation were a series of analogies that were given in order to instruct people about um, about God. You know, for instance, God rules over the air. Therefore, we have. And whenever you present the framework. Okay, first off, you need an overhead, you need a laser pointer, and all of these things in order to, uh, and you have to be constantly going back and forth like this, and, and um, you know, I was like, it's amazing. How do you think most, and I actually asked Vern Poitras this, because I, I got to the point where I had a splitting headache, and I was tired of the silliness, and I said, how do you think that, that Moses projected you know, this stuff like you're doing so we can understand it. You know, did he have like some sort of, did they have like a lamp? And, you know, he got very upset <laughs> about the, I was like, it's too complicated for, you know. It's, it's not the case that uh, only in the 20th century do we begin to understand what Genesis 1 really means. You know, it, it must have been perspicuous to the, I actually tried to make this point. I said, I'm sorry for being sarcastic. I apologize. But I said, it, it occurs to me that, that certainly creation was supposed to be perspicuous in its, uh, in its meaning. This is not perspicuous. This requires training at a seminary level in order to really understand and explain it to other people. And once you do that, you know, people are like, wow, that's really cool. But there's a certain Gnostic tendency to it. You know, it's, um, I've got the secret knowledge about what Genesis uh, 1 really believe, uh, means. And I'm going to take you into it. So we can do that. We can do um, precisely what uh, the, um, the Roman Catholic Church was guilty of doing in the, uh, during the Middle Ages. So don't um, be very hesitant to accept anything that requires a degree to understand as the meaning of Scripture, really. It's, um, it, it, it should not be that complicated. Genesis 1 really is not that complicated if you've got simply a 6 by 24 uh, understanding. 
um, that the Bible actually gives you morning and evening the first day, morning and evening the second day, and so on. Joy. things that we have to remember is the, um, you know, one of the, the, the reasons that we have scripture is it's intended to reform us and it's intended to reform our culture and, and so on. So that we come to understand things through the lens of scripture, not we understand scripture through the lens of, the lens of culture. So when we do that, when we push our meanings onto scripture, what are we doing? We're deforming it, not reforming it. Uh, so you get a deformation process going on. So anyway, moving on. I, I, could go on to that, but uh, okay. So our rule for determining the answer to any theological controversy. All right, it's not going to be modern. Uh, it's not going to be a modernistic th uh, pattern. It's not going to be postmodern. It's actually going to be something pre-modern. That's uh, critical. So um, our rule for determining the answer to any theological controversy is not I think that. That's modernism. Using human reason in order to uh, determine what seems to be the best methodology uh, or the best uh, means of understanding it and, and so on. That, that would be um, what we do, for instance, with creation. Okay, how am I going to understand Genesis 1? Well, I'm going to understand Genesis 1 essentially as poetry. Uh, it's a poetic uh, speech about God as the creator of the universe, but it's not history. Why would I come to that conclusion? It's a poetic speech about God as the creator of the, uh, or poetic verses about uh, God as the creator of the universe, but it's not history. Why? I mean, Genesis is a historical book, right? Yeah, okay, so Genesis suddenly becomes non-history when it comes to creation. Why? Evolutionary theory. Evolutionary theory, exactly. Science, the science. Uh, tells me that the world is much older than um, thousands of years, okay? Uh, I have geologists who are telling me that the rocks that they're looking at are millions of years old, or at least they're claiming they're millions of years old. Therefore, the creation couldn't have been several thousand years ago. It needed to have been several million years ago. Therefore, I can't read this as history. I'm going to read it as ancient Near Eastern poetry telling me about God and his power over the, uh, uh, the forces of nature and reinterpret everything. So I'll come up with the day-age theory. I'll come up with the gap theory. I'll come up with all of these things that don't spring from the text themselves. There's no gap theory. In the, I mean, you really have to push it into the text in order to find that. What springs from the text is literally seven, you know, six-day creation and seventh-day rest. That's... Very straightforward. Okay, join then, then William. But, but we are called to give a reason for the hope that we have. 
Yes, we need, uh, our, our, we, we have a reasonable faith. We need to uh, um, emphasize that. But William? I think it's important for Christians to remember there's, there's only one thing in our life that's actually infallible, mm -hmm. and that's the Word. Right. And even, even the cursory study of science revealed that science itself, when it's honest, goes, actually, if we were wrong about this, we need to correct it. All the time. I just, I'm waiting for the day that maybe someone goes, you know, our calibration on carbon data is actually off. Um, we have too many zeros, for whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. And I was having a conversation regarding this very thing a couple of years ago, and I said, you really need to be careful how much you're exalting uh, science here, particularly with regards to this. I'm all for cancer research. I'm all for those, those things that help us. But when, when they are causing you to really question what, is, what seems to be the plain speech of Scripture, we have a problem. Right. Uh, Jamie? Yeah, I think George's point was, should put it this way, I think what she's getting at is that good science and good theology don't contradict each other. Hmm. But evolution isn't good science. No, at, the, at science this point it's terrible science. So. It's entirely done in the in here and now, mm -hmm. present. So when we find a fossil, that's not data, that's an artifact of history. We don't know, we weren't there to watch what formed it. Right? When we do controlled experiments, we're there watching. We know what formed, or where, where the data is coming from. Mm -hmm. But in the case of fossils or whatever, it's all based on, even carbon dating, it presupposes that uh, the, the, that, that uh, how, yeah, well, the, 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 how much of that carbon was in the air that's the same as it is today? Mm -hmm. Well, how do you know that? How do you know it wasn't way different for a long time? Yeah, there, there's, um, and uh, science is supposed to be changing because um, as it accumulates evidence, eventually the older paradigms that contained the evidence, um, uh, more plausible explanations for it, um, no longer can, can contain it. One of those uh, areas uh, where that's very clear is evolution. Um, now that we understand the structures in cells, which Darwin didn't, now we understand the uh, complexity, for instance, of eyes, which Darwin didn't, uh, we understand that his theory is far too primitive to explain. I mean, an eye cannot evolve. It simply can't. There's, uh, there's no way. Um, neither can DNA. Also, science can't tell us about the past. Right. Because it's always done in the, in the present, which is the point. It doesn't matter what we learn in the future. It's mm -hmm. never going to tell us what happened in the past. So, once again, in modernism, uh, attempting to reason our way back uh, based on you know, what we know or we think we know in the, uh, in the present and then saying, well, that's, this can't be the, uh, the case. Uh, and that doesn't just apply to um, you know, the hard sciences. Uh, it applies also to things like archaeology. So, for instance, for many, many years, uh, in the, uh, starting in the uh, 18th and 19th century, actually 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, um, a lot of Bible interpreters uh, of a liberal, or at that time, modernistic uh, bent, um, used to poo-poo the idea of the Hittites. Oh, there was never such a civilization. It was made up you know, by the Bible writers. Until, of course, they found the Hittite uh, civilization and their library in Anatolia, and uh, now everybody accepts that the Hittite Empire actually existed. It was quite, uh, quite a power in the uh, uh, ancient Near East. So trust the Bible. 
All right, don't, don't attempt to reason, uh, to, to push human reason on the Bible. Um, human reason also uh, in biblical interpretation, we can come to passages and say, well, I, I know that ax heads don't float, therefore that can't be the meaning of that particular passage. No, no, the, the, uh, the meaning of, of the passage was that the ax head was really caused to float by the power of God. So in any event, uh, so not modernism, using human realism. It's also our rule for determining the answer to any theological controversy is not I feel that, which completely overtook the, um, I, I actually believe it or not, I prefer modernism to postmodernism and its interpretation, which is uh, the Bible means what I, I feel like it means, you know, so, um, uh, and this makes the, the Bible into just this wonderfully squishy thing that can, it can literally mean anything if you feel like it. So um, any passage that goes against your natural depraved, uh, you know, inclinations is not, you know, it doesn't mean what I think it means or what you think it means. Um, so in, in postmodernism, we have, uh, the, the Bible is constantly changing and morphing to, to match um, my beliefs in pop culture and so on, uh, simply because I, I feel this way or I feel that way. I can't accept that because it goes against what I feel. Um, uh, you know, I, I remember um, one particular <laughs> uh, one particular Bible study where um, somebody asked, well, what do you feel this means? And I actually said to the person, it doesn't matter what I feel it means. What does it mean is the question. <laughs> you know, that's the, uh, my, my feelings are completely irrelevant to the actual meaning of the passage. So um, we need to remember our, our feelings are determinative of exactly nothing except how we feel. That's it. You know, um, are you sad? Are you happy? Whether you're sad or you're happy, does that change the, uh, the meaning of scripture? No. Um, Joy, your hand is... You are kind of. All right, so our rule for determining the answer to any theological controversy is not an appeal to, uh, to tradition. No matter how old beliefs are, okay, that people have expressed, that does not, um, you know, the, the old question that I ask all the time is, how old does a lie have to be before it becomes the truth? And the answer is, it, yeah, seriously. Uh, it never becomes the truth. A lie is always a lie is always a lie. So merely because something was accepted for hundreds of years does not make it true and, and venerable and something that we should. Now, Jesus, of course, you remember, he, he bumped into this with the Pharisees all the time. Why do your apostles eat without washing their hands? Where in the Bible does it say that they have to? That they have to go through the ceremonial cleansing that the Orthodox Jews to this day will actually do before they eat, removing their ceremonial impurity. And the answer is nowhere. But it had become a tradition that they followed. And therefore, it was at that point, it was enshrined. Of course you do this. And they could come up with you know, theological reasonings, perhaps for doing it, but it was still a tradition that had no basis in, in reality. That happened several times um, in his conflicts with the, uh, with the Pharisees. So don't let tradition trump the meaning of scripture. Um, so there are many traditions that we evangelicals have. There are many traditions that, um, uh, that Protestants have, uh, have inherited um, gradually over a period of time from traditional 
uh, more traditional wings. So for instance, I'm, I'm always amazed at how um, Presbyterianism became Episcopalianism. We essentially uh, absorbed whole cloth so many Episcopal practices, like the church calendar, without even really thinking twice about it. These are comforting traditions. They like them. We like them. Let's do them. They're, they're traditional. Yes? Which is kind of amazing how they keep doing that, adding more. Yeah. You know, pulling from the other, like the Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday, exactly. Right. No, and now, and, now it's there. and now it's very common. Stations yeah. of the Cross as well. That was, uh, you know, you, you name it. Um, I, I now know of uh, Presbyterian churches that are observing essentially the entire Episcopal Church calendar, um, including the Saints' days. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the priests uh, trotted around dressed in white uh, robes with surplices, you know, the, uh, things hanging around their neck and, and miters and, and stuff like that. And you, you ask yourself, why are you doing these things? Well, because it's the venerable traditions of the church. It's not the venerable traditions of the church. It's the venerable traditions of men that you happen to like. You know. So, in any event, um, don't make the appeal to tradition your your be all and end all. Also, it's not an appeal to teachers and authorities. That was the case in in um, uh, in Christ's day. Rabbi so-and-so says has not Rabbi Gamaliel has not Rabbi you know. So they they would go back and forth, appealing to various teachers and authorities. We can fall into that as well, all right? I know guys who, um, and, I'm, and I, I will freely admit, I got very close to doing this as well, who were much more uh, conversant with what Reformed theologians said than what the Bible says, you know, and were willing to, uh, you know, to appeal to, they would be able to appeal to Theodore Beza, but would not be able to support you know, their belief uh, based upon scripture. Now, that doesn't mean script, the, the teachers are unimportant. They are, but they can't be the final deciders when it comes to a matter. So just because, you know, James White or Bodie Baucom or R.C. Sproul even believed um, something does not mean that, I, I mean, I, I differ very strongly with R.C. Sproul on on uh, a number of matters. The first time I realized that that happened, I was shocked. I assumed that I must absolutely be wrong because it's R.C. Sproul. After all, I still struggle with this idea, you know, that I was, um, I'm, out of, I'm out of keeping with the, uh, the great and venerable Sproul. But uh, anyway. I know. <laughs> anyway, but um, so don't, don't appeal to teachers and authorities. They are, the best of men are men at best. Always remember that. And then, uh, it is God's word says, uh, so our rule for determining the answer to any theological controversy is God's word says. This is pre-modernism. It's not post-modernism. It's not modernism. It's pre-modernism. Uh, it's the idea that the authority for all things is vested in scripture because God gave it to us. Therefore, God is speaking literally in scripture. So, thus saith the Lord, God speaking in the scriptures is our true guide regardless of how we feel about it. Regardless, I mean, there, there are many things in scripture that step on my toes. I, you know, that's the way of it. Um, but nonetheless, I, I must accept them because this is the word of God. And I'm always on shaky ground when I don't do that. When we have that, we can say, I know this is the case because it's in the word. I know what, <laughs> and then, yes, yeah. 
Yes. No, but these these last two. Sorry, presentation wasn't the. Uh, yeah. If I'd had more space, I would have moved, you know, that into that box, and, but then you wouldn't have had the right number of boxes. And, anyway, hot number of boxes. What what could be worse? Let's go to the next. So remember these things. The main things are the plain things. The main things that scripture teaches, okay, are the things uh, that are generally speaking the plainest, all right? They're not esoteric, they're not difficult to fathom. And make the plain things the main things in your life as well. And in your, if you, you know, become a teacher in the church, make them the main things as well. Uh, we don't really need to spend all of our time as pastors uh, delving into subjects like uh, supra and infralapsarianism and discussing them at length uh, or other theological um, uh, points, uh, but rather we do need to be proclaiming, for instance, justification by faith alone. Uh, loudly, law and gospel. Uh, the gospel has to be the plain thing in our, in our preaching or we've missed it. So uh, look for the clearest passages on any doctrine, not the most esoteric and, and, uh, and difficult to understand ones. Find the clearer ones and you'll get the meaning of the thing. Scripture interprets scripture. Uh, scripture without context becomes pretext. Remember that. Um, never become atomistic in your interpretation. What do I mean by that? Never become atomistic. Yes, Jimmy? Well, to look at a verse apart from its context, apart from the verses that surround it, or what it's written in, the author, the audience, etc. Right. So, for instance, uh, uh, by his stripes, uh, we are healed. Where does that come from? Isaiah 53, right? And um, what do Pentecostals use and Charismatics use that verse to try to prove? The, no. Right. The, you know, we are, we're healed because Jesus... Um, uh, because Christ is, was scourged for us and shed his blood that we're all, we all have healing. Physical bodily healing. Is that the point that's being made in Isaiah 53 there? No. I mean, it's, it's not talking about physical healing. It's, it's talking about uh, the removal of sin, the suffering servant who would justify his people. It's talking about the, you know, the great transfer of our sin to the uh, deliverer. Um, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and his giving righteousness to us. It's not, you know, bodily healing. That it's, but we can atomize scripture. I know lots of people who know individual verses from books but have no idea what's being spoken of in the surrounding verses. Don't do that. Uh, take them as units. Uh, don't found a doctrine on a single difficult verse. Uh, example, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Somebody go ahead and look that one up. See if you can guess which one it is. Yeah. Otherwise, what people do mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, so who founds one of their, their cardinal doctrines on this particular verse? The Mormons. The Mormons. They, um, all of their genealogical records is because they keep baptizing people for the dead. So, um, yes, uh, most, of the, uh, most of the genealogical uh, you know, organizations at this point are owned by the, uh, in the United States, are owned by the Mormons, and utilized by the FBI, so watch out. Anyway, um, so, uh, is there another one? I think that's the last, isn't it? That's it! Believe it or not, the impossible happened. 
we got through chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it only took seven tries. So, all right, let's go ahead and uh, and kill the video feed. I'll say.